Section 15 of The Black Prophet by William Carleton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 15. There was no reply given to this, but the moaning was deeper and apparently more indicative of pain and distress than before. A third silence ensued, during which they arrived at the gravestone, of whose proximity the driver had received orders to give them intimation. Hello! exclaimed Henderson. What's the matter? Why do you stop, my good fellow? We are at the Greystone, Your Honor, replied the man. Oh, very well. Pull up a moment, he added. My dear Miss Sullivan, we are at the Greystone now, said he, addressing her. She moaned again and started. Whist, said she, I don't hear his voice. At this moment a man approached the driver and desired him to let him know that a person wished to speak with him. The female in the carriage no sooner heard the voice even although the words were uttered in whispers than she called out father come to me help me home i'm dying you've been deceived mr henderson she added it wasn't mave sullivan but the prophet's own daughter you took away blessed be god i've saved her that disgrace father help me home i won't be long a trouble to you now what's this exclaimed henderson are you not miss sullivan Am I in a dream? said the prophet, approaching the door of the chase. Surely, now, what is it? It's my daughter's voice. Is that Sarah that I left in her bed of typhus fever this night? Or am I in a dream still, I say? Sarah, is it you? Speak. It is me, father. Help me home. It will be your last trouble with me, I think, at last. I hope so. Oh, I hope so. "'Who talks about typhus fever?' asked Henderson, starting out of the chase with alarm. "'What means this? Explain yourself.' "'I can no more explain it,' replied the prophet, "'than you can. I left my daughter lying in bed of typhus fever not more than three or four hours ago, and if I am to believe my ears, I find her in the carriage with you now.' "'I'm here,' she replied. "'Help me out.' "'Oh, I see it all now,' observed Henderson in a fit of passion, aggravated by the bitterness of his disappointment. "'I see your trick. And so, you old scoundrel, you thought to impose your termagant daughter upon me instead of Miss Sullivan, and she reeking with typhus fever, too, by your own account. For this piece of villainy I shall settle with you, however, never fear.' typhus fever good god and i so dreadfully afraid of it all along that i couldn't bear to look near a house in which it was nor approach any person even recovering out of it driver you may leave the girl at home as for me i shall not enter your chase again contaminated as it probably is with that dreadful complaint that is carrying off half the country Call to the Grange in the morning, and you shall be paid. Good night, you prophetical old impostor. I shall mark you for this piece of villainy. You may rest assured of that. A pretty trudge I shall have to the Grange. Such a vile and tempestuous night. But you shall suffer for it, I say again. Donald Dew was not merely disappointed at finding Sarah in such a situation. He was literally stupefied with amazement, and could scarcely believe the circumstances to be real. It had been agreed between him and Henderson that should the latter succeed in fetching Mave Sullivan as far as the Greystone, he, the prophet, should be considered to have fulfilled the conditions of the compact entered into between them, and the wages of his iniquity were to have been paid to him on that spot. It is unnecessary to say, therefore, that his disappointment and indignation were fully equal to those of Henderson himself. "'Where am I to go now?' asked the driver. "'To hell,' replied the prophet, "'and you may bring your fare with you.' "'You must take the reins yourself, then,' replied the man, "'for I don't know the way.' drive across the river here then continued the other and up the little road to the cottage on the right yes to the right till we get that 
that I can't find the words to name her, in the house. A few minutes brought them to the door, and poor Sarah found herself once more in her own cabin, but in such a state as neutralized most of her father's resentment. When the driver had gone, Donald came in again, and was about to wreak upon her one of those fits of impetuous fury in which, it was true, he seldom indulged, but which, when wrought to a high state of passion, were indeed frightful. Now he began, in the name of all that he paused, however, for on looking closely at her there appeared something in her aspect so utterly subversive of resentment that he felt himself disarmed at once. Her face was as pale as his own, but the expression of it was so chaste, so mournful, and yet so beautiful, that his tongue refused its office. Sarah, said he, what is the matter with you? Account for all this. I don't understand it. She rose with great difficulty, and tottering over towards him, laid her head upon his bosom, and looking up with a smile of melancholy tenderness into his face, burst into tears. Father, said she, it is not worth your while to be angry with Sarah now. I heard words from your lips this night that would make me forgive you a thousand crimes. I heard you say that you loved me, loved me better than anything else in this world. I'm glad I know it, for that will be all the consolation I will have on my bed of death. And there it is, father, she said, pointing to that which she always occupied. Help me over to it now, for I feel that I will never rise from it more. Her father spoke not, but assisted her to the bed, from which the old nurse, who had fallen asleep in it, now rose. He then went into the open air for a few minutes, but soon returned, and going over to the bedside where she lay, he looked upon her long and earnestly. Father, said she, I only did my duty this night. I knew indeed I would never recover it. But then she risked her life for me, and why shouldn't I do as much for her? The prophet still looked upon her, but spoke not a word. His lips were closely compressed, his hands tightly clasped, and his piercing eyes almost immovable. Minute after minute thus passed, until nearly half an hour had elapsed, and Sarah, dreadfully exhausted by what she had undergone, found her eyes beginning to close in an unsettled and feverish slumber. At length he said in a tone of voice which breathed of tenderness itself, Sleep, dear Sarah, dear Sarah, sleep. She apparently was asleep, but not so as to be altogether unconscious of his words, for, in spite of illness and fatigue, a sweet and serene smile stole gently over her pale face, rested on it for a little, and again gradually, and with a mournful placidity, died away. Her father sighed deeply, and, turning to the bedside, said, It is useless to ask her anything this night, Biddy. Can you tell me what became of her, or how she got out? Oh, the sorrow word, replied the old woman, I'm sure such a start was never taken out of mortal as I got when I came here and found her gone. I searched all the neighborhood, but no use. Devil a soul seen her. So after trotting here and there and up and down, I came in not able to mark the ground, and laid myself down on the bed where I fell asleep till you came back. But where in the name of all that's wonderful was she? Donald sat down in silence, and the crone saw that he was in no mood for answering questions or entering into conversation. She accordingly clapped herself on her hunkers and commenced sucking her dudeen without at all seeming to expect a reply. We, however, shall avail ourselves of the historian's privilege in order to acquaint our readers very briefly with that of which we presume, so far as Sarah is concerned, they can scarcely plead ignorance. Having heard the conversation between Roddy Duncan and her father, which satisfied her that the plot for taking away Maeve Sullivan was to be executed that very night, Sarah, with her usual energy and disregard for herself, 
resolved to make an effort to save her generous rival we must here acquaint our readers that during the progress of her convalescence she had been able to bring to her recollection the presence of mave sullivan in the shed on more than one occasion she did not however depend upon her own memory or impressions for this but made inquiries from her nurse who in common with the whole neighbourhood had heard of mave's humanity and attention towards her to which it was well known she owed her life the generous girl therefore filled with remorse at having for one moment contemplated any act of injury towards mave now determined to save her from the impending danger or lose her life in the attempt how she won her way in such an enfeebled state of health and on such a night cannot now be known it is sufficient here to say that she arrived only a few minutes before the attack was made upon sullivan's house and just in time to have mave and her cousin each concealed under the bed knowing however that a strict search would have rendered light of some kind necessary and enable the ruffians to discover mave besides she at once threw herself in their way under a feigned attempt to escape and the next moment three or four voices exclaimed exultingly we have her the cropped head here she is all right come away you darling you'll be a happy girl before this day week i hope so she replied oh i hope so bring me away the prophet's own adventure was not less disastrous roddy duncan's sudden withdrawal from the robbery surprised him very much on seriously and closely reconsidering the circumstances it looked suspicious and ere a single hour had passed donald felt an impression that on that business at least roddy had betrayed him acting upon this conviction for it amounted to that he soon satisfied himself that the house was secured against the possibility of any successful attack upon it this he discovered in the village of grange when on inquiring he found that most of the young men were gone to sit up all night in the big house so much being known any additional information to donnel was unnecessary he accordingly relinquished the enterprise and remembering the engagement with young henderson at the greystone met him there to receive the wages of his iniquity but with what success the reader is already acquainted this double failure of his projects threw the mind of the prophet into a train of deep and painful reflection he began to reflect that his views of life and society might not after all be either the safest or the best he looked back over his own past life and forward to the future and he felt as if the shadow of some approaching evil was over him he then thought of his daughter and pictured to himself what she might have been had he discharged as he ought to have done the duties of a christian parent towards her this and other recollections pressed upon him and his heart was once or twice upon the point of falling back into the fresh impulses of its early humanity when the trial of to-morrow threw him once more into a gloom that settled him down into a resentful but unsatisfactory determination to discharge the duty he had imposed upon himself chapter thirty one a double trial retributive justice with beating and anxious hearts did the family of the daltons rise upon the gloomy morning of the old man's trial deep concern prevented them from eating or even feeling inclined to eat but when about to sit down to their early and sorrowful repast mrs dalton looking around her asked where is poor tom from us this morning he went out last night replied one of his sisters but didn't come back since that poor boy said his mother won't be long with us he's gone every way health and strength and reason he has no appetite and a child has more strength after this day he must be kept in the house if possible 
or looked to when he goes out. But indeed I fear that in a day or two he will not be able to go anywhere. Poor affectionate boy. He never recovered the death of that unhappy girl, nor ever will. And it would be well for himself that he was removed from this world, in which indeed he's now not fit to live. Little time was lost in the dispatch of their brief meal, and they set out, with the exception of Mary, to be present at the trial of their aged father. The court was crowded to excess, as was but natural, for the case had excited a very deep interest throughout almost the whole country. At length the judge was seated, and in a few minutes Cornelius Dalton was put to the bar, charged with the willful murder of Bartholomew Sullivan, by striking him on the head with a walking-stick in the corner of a field near a place called the Greystone, etc., etc., situate and being in the barony of etc., etc. When the reverend-looking old man stood up at the bar, we need scarcely say that all eyes were immediately turned on him with singular interest. It was clear, however, that there was an admission of guilt in his very face, for instead of appearing with the erect and independent attitude of conscious innocence, he looked towards the judge and around the court with an expression of such remorse and sorrow, and his mild blue eye had in it a feeling so full of humility, resignation, and contrition, that it was impossible to look on his aged figure and almost white hairs with indifference, or we should rather say without sympathy. Indeed, his case appeared to be one of those in which the stern and unrelenting decree of human law comes to demand its rights, long after the unhappy victim has washed away his crime by repentance, and made his peace with God a position in connection with conventional offences that is too often overlooked in the administration of justice and the distribution of punishment. It was not without considerable difficulty that they succeeded in prevailing on him to plead not guilty, which he did at length but in a tone of voice that conveyed anything but a conviction of his innocence to the court, the jury, and those about him. The first witness called was Jeremiah Sullivan, who deposed that he was present in one of the Christmas Margamore's big market in the year 1798, when an altercation took place between his late brother Bartle and the prisoner at the bar, respecting the price of some barley which the prisoner had bought from his brother. The prisoner had bought it, he said, for the sum of thirty-five pounds, fifteen shillings, whilst his brother affirmed that it was only thirty-five pounds, thirteen shillings, upon which they came to blows. His brother, when struck by the prisoner, having returned the blow, and knocked the prisoner down. They were then separated by their friends who interposed and as the cause of the dispute was so trifling, it was proposed that it should be spent in drink, each contributing one half. To this both assented, and the parties, having commenced drinking, did not confine themselves to the amount disputed, but drank on until they became somewhat tipsy and were, with difficulty, kept from quarrelling again. The last words he heard from them that night were, as far as he can remember, Dalton, said his brother, you have no more brains than the pillar of a gate, upon which the other attempted to strike him, and, on being prevented, he shook his stick at him, and swore that, before he slept, he'd know whether he had brains or not. Their friends then took them different ways. He was separated from them, and knows nothing further about what happened. He never saw his brother alive afterwards. He then deposed to the finding of his coat and hat, each in a crushed and torn state. The footmarks in the corner of the field were proved to have been those of his brother and the prisoner, as the shoes of each exactly fitted them when tried. He was then asked how it could be possible, as his brother had altogether disappeared, 
to know whether his shoes fitted the footprints or not, to which he replied that one of his shoes was found on the spot the next morning, and that a second pair, which he had at home, were also tried and fitted precisely. The next witness was Roddy Duncan, who deposed that on the night in question he was passing on a car after having sold a load of oats in the market. On coming to the corner of the field, he saw a man drag or carry something heavy like a sack, which, on seeing him, Roddy, he, the man, left hastily inside the ditch and stooped as if to avoid being known. He asked the person what he was about, who replied that he hoped he was no gauger, by which he understood that he was concerned in private distillation and that it might have been malt, an opinion in which he was confirmed on hearing the man's voice, which he knew to be that of the prisoner, who had been engaged in the poteen work for some years. One thing struck him, which he remembered afterwards, that the prisoner had a hat in his hand, and what it was observed in the cross-examination, that the hat might have been his own, he replied that he did not think it could, as he had his own on his head at the time. He then asked, was that Condy Dalton, and the reply was, it is, unfortunately, upon which he wished him good-night, and drove homewards. He remembers the night well, as he lived at the time down at the Lone Ridge, and caught a severe illness on his way home, by reason of a heavy shower that wet him to the skin. He wasn't able to leave the house for three months afterwards. It was an unlucky night, anyway. Next came the prophet. It was near daybreak on the morning of the same night, and he was on his way through Glendew. He was then desired to state what it was that brought him through Glendew at such an hour. He would tell the truth, as it was safe to do so now, he had been making United Irishmen that night, and at all events he was on his keeping, for the truth was he had been reported to government, and there was a warrant out for him. He was then desired to proceed in his evidence, and he did so. On his way through Glendew he came to a very lonely spot where he had been obliged to hide at that time more than once or twice himself. Here, to his surprise, he found the body of a man lying dead, and he knew it at once to be that of the late Bartholomew Sullivan. Beside it was a grave dug about two feet deep. He was astonished and shocked, and knew not what to say, but he felt that a murder had been committed, and he became dreadfully afraid. In his confusion and alarm, he looked about to try if he could see any person near, when he caught a glimpse of the prisoner, Condy Dalton, crouched among a clump of blackthorn bushes, with a spade in his hands. It instantly came into his head that he, the prisoner, on finding himself discovered, might murder him also, and, in order to prevent the other from supposing that he had seen him, he shouted out and asked, Is there anybody near? and hearing no answer, he was glad to get off safe. In less than an hour he was on his way out of the country, for on coming within sight of his own house he saw it surrounded with soldiers, and he lost no time in going to England, where, in about a month afterwards, he heard that the prisoner had been hanged for the murder, which was an untrue account of the affair, as he, the prisoner, had only been imprisoned for a time, which he supposed led to the report. When asked why he did not communicate an account of what he had seen to someone in the neighborhood before he went, he replied that at that hour the whole country was in bed, and when a man is flying for his life, he is not very anxious to hold conversations with anybody. On the cross-examination he said, that the reason why he let the matter rest until now was that he did not wish to be the means of bringing a fellow-creature to an untimely death, 
especially such a man as the prisoner nor to be the means of drawing down disgrace upon his decent and respectable family his conscience however always kept him uneasy and to tell the truth he had neither peace nor rest for many a long year in consequence of concealing his knowledge of the murder and he now came forward to free his own mind from what he had suffered by it he wished both parties well and he hoped no one would blame him for what he was doing for indeed of late he could not rest in his bed at night many a time the murdered man appeared to him and threatened him he thought for not disclosing what he knew at this moment there was a slight bustle at that side of the court where the counsel for the defence sat which after a little time subsided and the evidence was about to close when the latter gentleman after having closely cross-examined him to very little purpose said so you tell us that in consequence of your very tender conscience you have not of late been able to rest in your bed at night i do and you say the murdered man appeared to you and threatened you i do which of them peter mcginnis what am i saying i mean bartle sullivan gentlemen of the jury you will please take down the name of peter mcginnis will your lordship also take a note of that well he proceeded will you tell us what kind of a man this bartle or bartholomew sullivan was he was a very remarkable man in appearance very stout with a long face a slight scar on his chin and a cast in his eye do you remember which of them indeed i don't and it wouldn't be reasonable that i should after such a distance of time and you saw that man murdered i seen him dead after having been murdered very right i stand corrected well you saw him buried i didn't see him buried but i saw him dead as i said and the grave ready for him do you think now if he were to rise again from that grave that you would know him well i'm sure i can't say by all accounts the grave makes great changes but if it didn't change him very much entirely it wouldn't be hard to know him again for as i said he was a remarkable man well then we shall give you an opportunity of refreshing your memory here he said addressing himself to some person behind him come forward get up on the table and stand face to face with that man the stranger advanced pushed over to the corner of the table and mounting it stood as he had been directed confronting the black prophet whether you seen me dead said the stranger or whether you seen me buried is best known to yourself all i can say is that here i am by name bartle sullivan alive and well thanks be to the almighty for it what is this asked the judge addressing dalton's counsel who is this man my lord replied that gentleman this is the individual for the murder of whom upon the evidence of these two villains the prisoner at the bar stands charged it is a conspiracy as singular as it is diabolical but one which i trust we shall clear up by and by i must confess i do not see my way through it at present returned the judge did not the prisoner at the bar acknowledge his guilt had you not some difficulty in getting him to plead not guilty are you sure mr o'hagan that this stranger is not a counterfeit the reply of counsel could not now be heard hundreds in the courthouse on hearing his name and seeing him alive and well before them at once recognized his person and testified their recognition by the usual manifestations of wonder satisfaction and delight the murmur in fact gradually gained strength and deepened until it fairly burst forth in one loud and astounding cheer and it was not as usual until the judge had threatened to commit the first person who should again disturb the court that it subsided there were two persons present however to whom we must direct a special attention of our readers we mean condy dalton and the prophet on both of whom 
sullivan's unexpected appearance produced very opposite effects when old dalton first noticed the strange man getting upon the table the appearance of sullivan associated as it had been by the language of his counsel with some vague notion of his resurrection from the grave filled his mind with such a morbid and uncertain feeling of everything about him that he began to imagine himself in a dream and that his reason must soon awaken to the terrible reality of his situation a dimness of perception in fact came over all his faculties and for some minutes he could not understand the nature of the proceedings around him the reaction was too sudden for a mind that had been broken down so long and harassed so painfully by impressions of remorse and guilt the consequence was that he had forgot for a time the nature of his situation all appeared unintelligible confusion about him he could see a multitude of faces and the people all agitated by some great cause of commotion and that was then all he could understand about it what is this said he to himself am i on my trial or is it some dream that i'm dreaming at home in my own poor place among my heart-broken family a little time however soon undeceived him and awoke his honest heart to a true perception of his happiness my lord said the strange man in reply to the judge's last observation i am no counterfeit and i thank my good and gracious god that i have been able to come in time to save this worthy and honest man's life condy dalton said he i can explain all but in the meantime let me shake hands with you and act your pardon for the bad treatment and provocation i gave you on that unlucky day well may i say so so far as you are concerned for as i hear and as i see indeed it has caused you and your family bitter trouble and sorrow bartle sullivan merciful father is this all right is it real no dream then and i have my old friend by the hand let me see let me feel you it is it's truth but there now i don't care who sees me i must offer one short prayer of thanksgiving to my merciful god who has released me from the snares of my enemies and taken this great weight off of my heart as he spoke he clasped his hands looked up with an expression of deep and heartfelt gratitude to heaven then knelt down in a corner of the dock and returned thanks to god the prophet on beholding the man stood more in surprise than astonishment and seemed evidently filled more with mortification rather than wonder he looked around the court with great calmness and then fastening his eyes upon sullivan studied or appeared to study his features for a considerable time a shadow so dark or we should rather say so fearfully black settled upon his countenance that it gave him an almost supernatural aspect it looked in fact as if the gloom of his fate had fallen upon him in the midst of his plans and iniquities he seemed for a moment to feel this himself for while the confusion and murmurs were spreading through the court he muttered to himself i am doomed i did this as if something drove me to it however if i could only be sure that the cursed box was really lost i might laugh at the world still he then looked around him with singular composure and ultimately at the judge as if to ascertain whether he might depart or not at this moment a pale sickly-looking female aided or rather supported by the pedlar and hanlon was in the act of approaching the place where dalton's attorney stood as if to make some communication to him when a scream was heard followed by the exclamation blessed heaven it's himself it's himself order and silence were immediately called by the crier but the prophet's eyes had been already attracted to the woman who was no other than hanlon's aunt and for some time he looked at her with an apparent sensation of absolute terror 
gradually however his usual indomitable hardness of manner returned to him he still kept his gaze fixed upon her as if to make certain that there could be no mistake after which his countenance assumed an expression of rage and malignity that no language could describe his teeth became absolutely locked as if he could have ground her between them and his eyes literally blazed with a fury that resembled that of a rabid beast of prey the shock was evidently more than the woman could bear who still supported by the peddler and hanlon withdrew in a state almost bordering on insensibility a very brief space now determined the trial sullivan's brother and several of the jurors themselves clearly established his identity and as a matter of course condy dalton was instantly discharged his appearance in the street was hailed by the cheers and acclamations of the people who are in general delighted with the acquittal of a fellow-creature unless under circumstances of very atrocious criminality i suppose i may go down said the prophet you have done with me not exactly replied dalton's counsel let these two men be taken into custody said the judge and let an indictment of perjury be prepared against them and sent to the grand jury forthwith my lord proceeded the counsel we are we think in a capacity to establish a much graver charge against mcgowan a charge of murder my lord discovered under circumstances little short of providential in short not to trouble the reader with the dry details of the courts after some discussion it was arranged that two bills should be prepared and sent up one for perjury and the other for the murder of a carman named peter mcginnis almost at the very spot where it had until then been supposed that poor dalton had murdered bartholomew sullivan the consequence was that donnel or donald mcgowan the black prophet found himself in the very dock where dalton had stood the preceding day his case whether as regarded the perjury or the murder was entitled to no clemency beyond that which the letter of the law strictly allowed the judge assigned him counsel with whom he was permitted to communicate and he himself probably supposing that his chance of escape was then greater than if more time were allowed to procure and arrange evidence against him said he was ready and willing without further notice to be brought to trial we beg to observe here that we do not strictly confine ourselves to the statements made during the trial inasmuch as we deem it necessary to mention circumstances to the reader which the rules of legitimate evidence would render inadmissible in a court of justice we are not reporting the case and consequently hold ourselves warranted in adding whatever may be necessary to making it perfectly clear or in withholding circumstances that did not bear upon our narrative with this proviso we now proceed to detail the denouement the first evidence against him was that of our female friend whom we have called the widow hanlon but who in fact was no other than the prophet's wife and sister to the man mcginnis whom he had murdered the prophet's real name she stated was MacIver, but why he changed it she knew not he had been a man in the early part of his life of rather a kind and a placid disposition unless when highly provoked and then his resentments were terrible he was all his life however the slave of a dark and ever wakeful jealousy that destroyed his peace and rendered his life painful both to himself and others it happened that her brother the murdered man had prosecuted MacIver for taking forcible possession of a house for which he MacIver, received twelve months imprisonment it happened also about that time that is a little before the murder that he had become jealous of her and a neighbor who had paid his addresses to her before marriage MacIver at this period 
acted in the capacity of a plain land surveyor among the farmers and cottiers of the barony and had much reputation for his exactness and accuracy while in prison he vowed deadly vengeance against her brother mcginnis and swore that if ever she spoke to him acknowledged him or received him into her house during his life she should never live another day under his roof in this state matters were when her brother having heard that her husband was in a distant part of the barony surveying or subdividing a farm came to ask her to her sister's wedding and while in the house the prophet most unexpectedly was discovered within a few perches of the door on his return terror on her part from a dread of his violence and also an apprehension lest he and her brother should meet and perhaps seriously injure each other even to bloodshed caused her to hurry the latter into another room with instructions to get out of the window as quietly as possible and to go home unfortunately he did so but had scarcely escaped when a poor mendicant woman coming in to ask alms exclaimed take care good people that you have not been robbed i saw a man coming out of the windy and running over toward jimmy kemble's house kemble being the name of the young man of whom her husband was jealous mciver now furious ran towards kemble's and meeting that person's servant maid at the door asked if her master was at home she replied yes he just came in this minute what direction did he come from from the direction of your own house she answered it should be stated however that his wife at once recollecting his jealousy told him immediately that the person who had left the house was her brother but he rushed on and paid no attention whatsoever to her words from this period forward he never lived with her but she has heard recently no longer ago than last night that he had associated himself with a woman named eleanor mcgurk about thirty miles farther west from their original neighborhood near a place called glendu and it was at that place her brother was murdered neither her anxieties nor her troubles however ended here when her husband left her he took a daughter their only child and then almost an infant away with him and contrived to circulate a report that he and she had gone to america after her return home she followed her nephew to this neighborhood and that accounted for her presence there so well indeed did he manage this matter that she received a very contrite and affectionate letter that had been sent she thought from boston desiring her to follow himself and the child there the deceit was successful gratified at the prospect of joining them she made the due preparations and set sail it is unnecessary to say that on arriving at boston she could get no tidings whatsoever of either the one or the other but as she had some relations in the place she found them out and resided there until within a few months ago when she set sail for ireland where she arrived only a short time previous to the period of the trial she has often heard macgyver say that he would settle accounts with her brother some fine night but he usually added i will take my time and kill two birds with one stone when i go about it by which she thought he meant robbing him as well as murdering him as her brother was known mostly to have a good deal of money about him we now add here although the fact was not brought out until a later stage of the trial that she proved the identity of the body found in glendu as being that of her brother very clearly his right leg had been broken and having been mismanaged was a little crooked which occasioned him to have a slight halt in his walk the top joint also of the second toe on the same foot had been snapped off by the tramp of a horse while her brother was a schoolboy two circumstances which were corroborated by the coroner 
and one or two of those who had examined the body at the previous inquest and which they could then attribute only to injuries received during his rude internment but which were now perfectly intelligible and significant the next witness called was bartholomew sullivan who deposed that about a month before his disappearance from the country he was one night coming home from a wake and within half a mile of the grey stone he met a person evidently a carman accompanying a horse and cart who bade him the time of night as he passed he noticed that the man had a slight halt as he walked but could not remember his face although the night was by no means dark on passing onwards toward home he met another person walking after the carman who on seeing him sullivan hastily threw some weapon or other into the ditch the hour was about three o'clock in the night morning and on looking close at the man for he seemed to follow the other in a stealthy way he could only observe that he had a very pale face and heavy black eyebrows indeed he has little doubt but that the prisoner is the man although he will not actually swear it after such a length of time this was the evidence given by bartholomew sullivan the third witness produced was theodosius mcmahon or as he was better known toddy mac the peddler who deposed to the fact of having previously to his departure for boston given to peter mcginnis a present of a steel tobacco box as a keepsake and as the man did not use tobacco he said on putting it into his pocket this will do nicely to hold my money in on my way home from dublin upon which toddy mac observed laughingly that if he put either silver or brass in it half the country would know it by the jingle i'll take care of that never fear replied mcginnis for i'll put nothing in this but the soft comfortable notes he was asked if the box had any particular mark by which it might be known yes he had himself punched upon the lid of it the initials of a person to whom he gave it p.m. for peter mcginnis would you know the box if you saw it certainly is that it asked the prosecuting attorney placing the box in his hands that is the same box i gave him upon my oath it's a good deal rusted now but there's the holes as i punch them and by the same token there is the letter p the very place with the two holes broke into one as i was punching it pray how did the box come to turn up asked the judge in whose possession has it been ever since my lord we have just come to that crier call eleanor mcgurk the woman hitherto known as nelly mcgowan and supposed to be the prophet's wife now made her appearance will you state to the gentlemen of the jury what you know about this box our readers are partially aware of her evidence with respect to it we shall however briefly recapitulate her account of the circumstance the first time she ever saw it she said was the night the carman was murdered or that he disappeared at any rate she resided by herself in a little house at the mouth of the glendu the same she and the prophet had lived in ever since they had not long been acquainted at that time but still longer than was right or proper she had been very little in the country then and any time he did come was principally at night when he stopped with her and went away again generally before day in the morning he passed himself on her as an unmarried man and said his name was mcgowan on that evening he came about dusk but went out again and she did not see him till far in the night when he returned and appeared to be fatigued and agitated his clothes too were soiled and crumpled especially the collar of his shirt which was nearly torn off as in a struggle of some kind she asked him what was the matter with him and said he looked as if he had been fighting he replied no nelly but i have killed two birds with one stone this night she asked him what 
he meant by those words, but he would give her no further information. I'll give no explanation, said he, but this, and turning his back to her, he opened a tobacco box, which, by stretching her neck, she saw distinctly, and taking out a roll of banknotes, he separated one from the rest, and handing it to her, exclaimed, There's all the explanation you can want. A close mouth, Nelly, is the sign of a wise head, and by keeping a close mouth, you'll get more explanations of this kind. Do you understand that? said he. I do, she replied. Very well, then, he observed. Let that be the law and gospel between us. When he fell asleep, she got up, and looking at the box, saw that it was stuffed with banknotes, had a broken hinge, the hinge was freshly broken, and something like two letters on the lid of it. She then did not see it, she continued, until some weeks ago, when his daughter and herself, having had a quarrel in which the girl cut her, she, his daughter, on stretching up for some cobwebs on the wall to staunch the bleeding, accidentally pulled the box out of a crevice in which it had been hid. About this time, she added, the prisoner became very restless at night, indeed, she might say by day and night, and after a good deal of gloomy ill-temper he made inquiries for it, and on hearing that it had again appeared, even threatened her life if it were not produced. She closed her evidence by stating that she had secreted it, but could tell nothing of its ultimate and mysterious disappearance. Hanla's part in tracing the murder is already known, we presume, to the reader. He dreamt, but his dream was not permitted to go to the jury, that his father came to him and said that if he repaired to the grey stone at Glendu on a night which he named at the hour of twelve o'clock, he would get such a clue to his murder as would enable him to bring his murderer to justice. "'Are you the son, then, of the man who is said to have been murdered?' asked the judge. "'He was his son,' he replied, and came first to that part of the country in consequence of having been engaged in a party fight in his native place. It seems a warrant had been issued against him and others, and he thought it more prudent to take his mother's name, which was Hanlon, in order to avoid discovery, the case being a very common one under circumstances of that kind. Roddy Duncan's explanation with respect to the tobacco-box was not called for on the trial, but we shall give it here in order to satisfy the reader. He saw Nellie McGowan as we may still call her, thrusting something under the thatch of the cabin, and feeling a kind of curiosity to ascertain what it could be, he seized the first opportunity of examining, and finding a tobacco-box, he put it in his pocket, and thought himself extremely fortunate in securing it, for reasons which the reader will immediately understand. The truth is that Roddy, together with about half a dozen virtuous youths in the neighborhood, were in the habit of being out pretty frequently at night, for what purposes we will not now wait to inquire. Their usual place of rendezvous was the grey stone, in consequence of the shelter and concealment which its immense projections afforded them. On the night of the first meeting between Sarah and Hanlon, Roddy had heard the whole conversation by accident, whilst waiting for his companions, and very judiciously furnished the groans, as he did also upon the second night, on both occasions for his own amusement. His motives for ingratiating himself through means of the box with Sarah and Hanlon are already known to the reader, and require no further explanation from us. In fact, such a train of circumstantial evidence was produced as completely established the prophet's guilt in the opinion of all who had heard the trial, and the result was a verdict of guilty by the jury and a sentence of death by the judge. Your case, said the judge, as he was about to pronounce sentence, is another proof of the certainty with which providence never, so to speak, 
loses sight of the man who deliberately sheds his fellow-creature's blood it is an additional and striking instance too of the retributive spirit with which it converts all the most cautious disguises of guilt no matter how ingeniously assumed into the very manifestations by which its enormity is discovered and punished after recommending him to a higher tribunal and impressing upon him the necessity of repentance and seeking peace with god he sentenced him to be hanged by the neck on the fourth day after the close of the assizes recommending his soul as usual to the mercy of his creator the prophet was evidently a man of great moral intrepidity and firmness he kept his black unquailing eye fixed upon the judge while he spoke but betrayed not a single symptom of a timid or vacillating spirit when the sentence was pronounced he looked with an expression of something like contempt upon those who had broken out as usual into those murmurs of compassion and satisfaction which are sometimes uttered under circumstances similar to his now said he to the gola that everything is over and the worst come to the worst the sooner i get to my cell the better i have despised the world too long to care a single curse what it says or thinks of me or about me all i'm sorry for is that i didn't take more out of it and that i let it slip through my hands as easily as i did my curse upon it and its villainy bring me in the gratification of the country for a wide circle round was now absolutely exuberant there was not only the acquittal of the good-hearted and generous old man to fill the public with a feeling of delight but also the unexpected resurrection as it were of honest bartholomew sullivan which came to animate all parties with a double enjoyment indeed the congratulations which both parties received were sincere and fervent old condy dalton had no sooner left the dock than he was surrounded by friends and relatives each and all anxious to manifest their sense of his good fortune in the usual way of treating him and his family their gratitude however towards the almighty for the unexpected interposition in their favour was too exalted and pious to allow them to profane it by convivial indulgences with as little delay therefore as might be they sought their humble cabin where a scene awaited them that was calculated to dash with sorrow the sentiments of justifiable exultation which they felt our readers may remember that owing to sarah's illness the prophet as an afterthought had determined to give to the abduction of mave sullivan the colour of a famine outrage and for this purpose he had resolved also to engage thomas dalton to act as a kind of leader a circumstance which he hoped would change the character of the proceedings altogether to one of wild and licentious revenge on the part of dalton poor dalton lent himself to this as far as its aspect of a mere outbreak had attractions for the melancholy love of turbulence by which he had been of late unhappily animated he accordingly left home with the intention of taking a part in their proceedings but he never joined them where he had gone to or how he had passed the night nobody knew be this as it may he made his appearance at home about noon on the day of his father's trial in evidently a dying state and in this condition his family found him on their return tis true they had the consolation of perceiving that he was calmer and more collected than he had been since the death of peggy murtagh his reason indeed might be said to have been altogether restored they found him sitting in his father's armchair his head supported oh how tenderly supported by his affectionate sister mary 
Mrs. Dalton herself had come before to break the joyful tidings to this excellent girl, who, on seeing her, burst into tears, exclaiming in Irish, Mother dear, I'm afraid you're bringing a heavy heart to a house of sorrow. A light heart, dear Mary, a light and grateful heart. Your father, a couchle McCree, your father, my dear, unhappy Tom, is not a murderer. The girl had one arm around her brother's neck, but she instinctively raised the other as if in ecstatic delight. But in a moment she dropped it again and said sorrowfully, Aye, but, mother dear, didn't he say himself he was guilty? He thought so, dear, but it was only a rash blow, and, oh, how many a deadly accident has come from harsh blows. The man was not killed at all, dear Mary, but is alive and well, and was in the courthouse this day. Oh, what do we not owe to a good God for his mercy towards us all? Tom, dear, I'm glad to see you at home. You must not go out again. Oh, mother dear, said his sister, kissing him and bursting into tears. Tom's dying. What's this? exclaimed his mother. Death's in my boy's face. He raised his head gently, and looking at her replied with a faint smile, No, mother, I will not go out any more. I will be good at last. It's time for me. At this moment, old Dalton, and the rest of the family entered the house, but were not surprised at finding Mary and her mother in tears, for they supposed, naturally enough, that the tears were tears of joy for the old man's acquittal. Mrs. Dalton raised her hand to enjoy silence, and then, pointing to her son, said, We must keep quiet for a little. They all looked upon the young man, and saw that death, immediate death was stamped upon his features gleamed wildly out of his eyes and spoke in his feeble and hollow voice father said he let me kiss you or come and kiss me thank god for what has happened this day father he added looking up into the old man's face with an expression of unutterable sorrow and affection father i know i was wild but i will be wild no more i was wicked too but i will be wicked no more there is an end now to all my follies and all my crimes and i hope i hope that god will have mercy upon me and forgive me the tears rained fast upon his pale face from the old man's eyes as he exclaimed he will have mercy upon you my darling son look to him i know darling that whatever crimes or follies you committed you are sorry for them and god will forgive you i am he replied kiss me all of you my sight is getting weak and my tongue isn't so strong as it was one after one they all kissed him and as each knew that this tender and sorrowful embrace must be the last that should ever pass between them, it is impossible adequately to describe the scene which then took place. I have a request to make, he added feebly, and it is that I may sleep with Peggy and our baby. Maybe I am not worthy of that, but still I'd like it, and my heart's upon it, and I think she would like it too. It can be done, and we'll do it, replied his mother. We'll do it, my darling boy, my son, my son, we'll do it. Don't you all forgive me, forgive me everything. They could only for some time reply by their tears, but at length they did reply, and he seemed satisfied. Now, said he, there was an old Irish air that Peggy used to sing for me, I thought I heard her often singing it of late, did I? I suppose so, darling, replied his mother. I suppose you did. Mary here, he proceeded, sings it. I would like to hear it before I go. It's the air of Gragal Macree. Before you go, Alana, exclaimed his father, pressing him tenderly to his breast. Oh, but they're bitter words to us, my darling and my loving boy. But the air... Mary, darling, 
strive and sing it for him as well as you can it was a trying task for the affectionate girl who however so far overcame her grief as to be able to sing it with a very pathos of nature itself ay said he as she proceeded that's it that's what peggy used to sing for me because she knew i liked it tender and full of sorrow were the notes as they came from the innocent lips of that affectionate sister her task however was soon over for scarcely had she concluded the air when her poor brother's ears and heart were closed to the melody and affection it breathed forever i know said she with tears that there is one thing will give comfort to you all respecting poor tom peter rafferty who helped him home seeing the dying state he was in went over to the car and brought one of father henratty's curates to him so that he didn't depart without receiving the rites of the church thank god this took the sting of bitterness out of their grief and infused into it a spirit that soothed their hearts and sustained them by that consolation which the influence of religion and its ordinances in the hour of death and sorrow never failed to give an irish family old dalton's sleep was sound that night and when he awoke the next morning the first voice he heard was that of our friend toddy mac which despite of the loss they had sustained and its consequent sorrow diffused among them a spirit of cheerfulness and contentment you have no reason said he to fly in the face of god i don't mean you mrs dalton but these youngsters if what i heard is true that that poor boy never was himself since the girl died it was a mercy for god to take him and after all he is a better judge of what's fit for us than we ourselves bounce now mr dalton you have little time to lose i want you to come with me to the agent mr travers he wishes i think to see yourself for he says he has heard a good account of you and i've promised to bring you if we're there by two o'clock we'll hit the time pretty close what can he want with him do you think asked mrs dalton dear knows fifty things maybe to stand for one of his children or but ah forgive me i could be merry anywhere else but here here forgive me mrs dalton in a short time dalton and he mounted a car which toddy had brought with him and started for the office of mr travers end of section fifteen